The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about creative ways to use your brain. A little later on, we'll talk with Ben Lilly about storytelling with science. But first, we'll talk to author Guy P. Harrison about what he calls good thinking. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined today by Guy P. Harrison, award-winning writer and author of a number of books that I've enjoyed, like Think, Why You Should Question Everything, and 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True. He's here today to talk about his newest book, Good Thinking, What You Need to Know to Be Smarter, Safer, Wealthier, and Wiser. Welcome back, Guy. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Desiree. I'm glad to be with you. Now, of course, the obvious first question is, what is good thinking, sir? Yeah, good thinking is uh, sounds positive, doesn't it? Good thinking even has that word good in it. So how can anybody be against it? Good thinking is my umbrella term for understanding at least something, the basics of the human brain, how it evolved, how it's put together, how it functions, how to maintain it take care of it with good nutrition, physical activity, um, lifelong learning, and to use it well in daily life, whether it's shopping, deciding where you want to live, choosing you know which car to buy, all these life decisions you make day after day, you know, in and throughout your life. If you're a good thinker, you reduce the error rate. Nobody's ever going to be mistake-free. Not going to happen. But we can significantly reduce the amount of mistakes that we make through our lives. So to sum up, good thinking is my umbrella term for understanding the human brain, all its weird, quirky ways, its unexpected processes, and maintaining it well and using it well in daily life. And I like the ter- I like the phrase good thinking because it just sounds so positive. Who the heck could be against good thinking? Critical thinking scares some people away. They say it's a little too sciencey or something right. like that. It just feels like a something in a philosophy class, you know. So some people aren't really attracted to that critical thinking phrase. And uh, skepticism scares off even more people. They think it somehow means cynicism or, you know, something negative. People who just don't want to believe in anything and don't like anything. They want to tear down stuff. You know, it's completely wrong, of course, but that's the perception many people have. So good thinking, you know, it has the darn name good in it. So (laughs) how can any, I I have yet to meet a person who said good thinking, huh? Interesting. No, I don't want good thinking. I don't want that. I want bad thinking. You know, nobody's going to say that. So it's a, it's just my attempt to make this whole idea of critical thinking, thinking like a scientist, being a good skeptic, all this stuff. It's a way to try to package it and present it in a more digestible, appealing manner to the general public. I I approve, obviously. So what, well then, What's the difference, though, between good thinking and just being intelligent? Well, first of all, one can be extremely intelligent and be a terrible skeptic, a horrible critical thinker. You, one could be, you know, uh, applying bad thinking with a brilliant mind. I mean, that we see that all the time. That's one of the uh, primary themes in many of my books, especially this one, Good Thinking, is that you can't 
you can't get yourself into a situation where you feel so confident because maybe you have a high IQ or you're very accomplished academically. You have a graduate degree. So you think, you know, hey, I've arrived. I've done it. I've got a great brain. Therefore, I'm safe. No, you're not. Not at all. You know, good thinking, being a good skeptic, being a good critical thinker, these things are are totally separate from being simply smart, bright, or like I said, having a great education. You see it all the time. It's a different thing. Good thinking is, it's more of an attitude. It's a, uh, it's a skill. It's, it takes courage. You know, you have to apply it. You have to dedicate yourself to it. You have to be willing to question yourself, second guess yourself all the time. You have to be willing to question your most cherished beliefs and hopes. You know, that's required of good thinking. And many millions of, of very, very intelligent, accomplished people don't do this. I mean, right here, you know, good example. I, I do a blog uh, thing for psychology today. And I wrote a recent piece about Ben Carson here in the United States. He's a leading candidate in the Republican presidential primary race. You know, he may be president. He's doing very well. And this guy is a, was a brain surgeon. He's a retired brain surgeon, graduated from Yale, a top university. But he constantly says things that any high school kid who is a good thinker would just cringe at just ridiculous stuff you know that comes out of his mouth and he's a perfect example of a person uh, of someone who is highly intelligent well accomplished and yet not a good thinker at least not consistently well and we tend to think of other people as uh, bad thinkers but never ourselves and that is terribly untrue we are all in the same boat here correct oh absolutely yeah it's you know, I'm, I'm impressed you said that because there's actually uh, studies to back that up. That's not just an assumption that people like you and I have based on what we see out in the world. Yeah, uh, psychologists have actually studied this, and it's true. We all tend to view ourselves as very rational beings. We, uh, we, you know, we make our decisions. I make my decisions based on observations and a cold, hard look at the evidence. That's what everybody feels about themselves. But the truth, and we also tend to think, but man, all these people around me they're irrational they're they're all emotional and they're just you know winging it that's what we all we all even the best of us we tend to think like this all the time it's a very natural thing but the reality is that we're all irrational you know we're naturally all predisposed to have one foot in fantasy land and just you know be completely led around like puppets by our subconscious making all these little shortcuts and weird assumptions and and yet we're constantly feeling confident and we we feel like we're really thinking it all through but that's not really the case. And good thinking, you know, it doesn't cure any of this. Your brain is still going to do all these weird little things it does. But good thinking at least gets you to be aware of it. And like I said, second guess yourself, rethink conclusions, no matter how much you love them, no matter how long you've embraced them, you got to reconsider things. You got to reconsider new evidence. All this is good thinking. Well, and that's the thing. This is important because sloppy thinking has real world repercussions, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah, terribly. I mean, it's horrible. Our world is a you know, disaster. I, and sometimes, you know, some people at first, they accuse me of hyperbole, you know, exaggerating. But I, I honestly, I say all the time, I say and write all the time that poor thinking is the great unrecognized crisis of our world. It really is. It's a daily disaster, the one that never makes the headlines. 
And that sounds almost ridiculous. I mean, come on. Yeah, what are you talking about? Because a few people believe in astrology, who cares? You know, we got real problems. We've got terrorism and environmental disasters and all this stuff. Well, you know, let's slow down and think about it. Look, look at these world leaders, how they're thinking. Look, look at the problem. For example, give you one example, terrorism. You know, that's the big thing in the world. It's dominating the media constantly. Islamic terrorists, you know, I've got the whole world all worked up. And, and right now, the uh, flavor of the month is ISIS. That's the big group. You know, they've sort of supplanted Al-Qaeda as the boogeyman of the moment that's got everybody really concerned. And you've got this you know, this significant group of people in the Middle East now who are actually drawing people from other societies around the world to come join them and fight, you know, in this wonderful jihad. And the thing is, I've heard everybody, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter what country, hear all these these ideas, these, these suggestions, these uh, solutions, you know, potential solutions for how to deal with ISIS. You know, everything from bombs to, to uh, being nicer to them or giving money to the region, you know, all these kind of things. I never hear the one solution that really gets to the root problem, the core problem, which is bad thinking. Good thinking is what these people need. That's the one thing. Because, you know, just consider this. The leaders of ISIS, okay, these are people who say things in writing and say them, uh, write them and say them. They say that the world is less than 10,000 years old. Um, Evolution is a complete absurd fabrication. They say that the world will end by supernatural, the world as we know it will end by supernatural means very soon, within the next few years, within the the next several years, the world will end. And God is going to usher in this new age and all this. This is what the, the leaders of ISIS maintain. And they've got thousands and thousands of people running, flocking to them to fight for them, to kill for them, to die for these leaders who are saying these things. But any, you know, any a high school dropout who was a good thinker, who applied good thinking in their life and knew to do a, a minimal amount of research about an extraordinary claim, who knew to, con- to uh, compare sources and to, to consider contradictory claims, uh, a high school dropout who applied just that much good thinking to the claims of the ISIS leaders wouldn't cross the street on the orders of these people, much less travel to the Middle East and fight for them because they would just be, it would be absurd, you know. It, was, it would be ridiculous if some guy thinks the, the Earth is six thousand years old. If he's if he can be that wrong about something, then maybe he's wrong about you know the need for me to go over and start cutting people's heads off in the Middle East or something. You know, I mean that that's a perfect example of how good thinking is so important. It could prevent so many problems. I mean, I, I could go on and on about this because it really it's one of the primary motivations in my work. It just frustrates me that. People suffer so many, you know, so, and I don't, you know, it's just frustrating because it's unnecessary. You know, I've traveled, I've traveled through six continents, seen very poor people, uh, many very wealthy people in many societies, interviewed them, talked to them casually, and a consistent problem that I saw around the world, regardless of the society, is, is the lack of good thinking. People buying things, trusting people, um, sacrificing their time, their money, their, their years of their lives, their good health in many cases for things that a little bit of good thinking would have shown, you know, it would have enlightened them to know that it's just not worth it. It's, a, it's not worthy of my time, effort, or money or anything. And they would have turned away. 
You know, people die every moment for lack of good thinking. Well, and I really want to get that across to people. I, I know you've been accused of hyperbole, but but I do agree with you. When uh, one of the things that I think your book really gets across is when you let yourself engage in sloppy thinking in one area, uh, it can bleed over into other areas of life. So you mentioned astrology, but then you mentioned ESIS, and that's a much shorter path than people would would really realize. Correct? Yeah, it really is because you know there there are many beliefs that seem somewhat harmless on the surface. You know, if somebody believes in Bigfoot, uh, is that really going to hurt that person or bring harm to the world? No, but it could lead to something bad. It really could because if, you know, if... If I meet someone who is absolutely convinced that the Bermuda Triangle is the real deal and ships and planes have been getting sucked down into this weird region of the uh, southern Atlantic and northern Caribbean off the coast of Florida, bizarre things are happening there, something supernatural is afoot down there. Well, okay, yeah, they're they're probably wrong on that claim because there's no good evidence for it. And that's kind of embarrassing and silly, but it seems harmless. But it's not because it's a symptom of a deeper problem that person has as far as their inability to apply good thinking. And if they're willing to believe something as flimsy as a claim of the Bermuda Triangle or Bigfoot then they are much more likely to wander into a health food store and buy some herbal remedy for this pain they're having in their stomach instead of going to a doctor. And it might turn out to be stomach cancer and they've wasted time. They've wasted time because they've trusted in some kind of unproven alternative medicine when they should have relied on medical science. They would have had a, at least a better chance of surviving if they have a serious injury. So, yeah, I mean, these, I, I view all these irrational beliefs as serious because they're symptoms of poor thinking, which can get people in trouble, can and does get people in trouble. This is Science for the People, and I'm chatting with Guy P. Harrison about his new book, Good Thinking, What You Need to Know to Be Smarter, Safer, Wealthier, and Wiser. Okay, so what exactly is required then to be successful at good thinking? Um, like I said earlier, you've got to you've got to know you got to know a little bit about the evolution of the brain to start with. That's a good start because if you understand, I don't mean you don't have to you know get a master's degree in anthropology or you know or or biology, but if you just understand that the human brain evolved on the fly, you know it's not like you got to understand with evolution, it all has to happen while the organisms are alive. You don't get to call time out in nature and go rearrange the structure of the brain, you know, go put the brain in dry dock and rearrange the parts. It all has to happen while the creature is surviving, you know, succeeding in, in an often stressful and challenging environment. So all these things sort of happen in a, in a makeshift kind of, a, a, um, you know, almost a, a I don't want to say desperation, but but a uh, you know a can-do way that just has to work. It has to work, or extinction happens. You know that's the only option. So it's always got to keep that creature. In this case, would be us, our ancestors, keep us going. One more generation, one more generation. So w when you understand a little bit about that, you start to see. Oh, okay. So now I see why memory works the way it does. And guess what? We can't rely on memory. Human memory is ridiculous as far as 
accurately recalling events. It's horrible. I mean, the whole, the filing system is, is terrible. It, it's not, people think that human memory is sort of like a, you know, an organic DVR system in the head that just plays back past events, you know, not even close. The, the brain tells a story to you when you want to remember the past. It'll tell you a story based on bits of information. It's kind of like an archaeologist, you know, that found, finds artifacts and uh, reconstructs the past based on that. That's kind of what's going on in your head every time you remember something that's how it works and in in the brain vision you don't really see the reality around you your brain takes in information and and then constructs a picture a reflection of reality and that's what you see in your head and all this is it's necessary you've got the brain's got to be efficient you've only got so much brain power going inside your skull you can't you can't look out your window and focus sharply on every individual blade of grass in your front yard. You know, that's, that would just eat up too much brain power, too much memory in your head. Can't do it. So your brain, your brain evolved in a way that works very efficiently for what it needs to do. You know, it's kept us alive this time and your brain is more concerned in the here and now and memories are really designed to help you predict the future. You know, believe it or not, to draw information from the past so you can make good decisions in the present and plan for the future. That's what it's about. it was never meant to be, you know, this this uh, organ that we could sit in courtrooms and promise to tell the truth and then say, yes, I saw that man kill that woman that night, you know, six months ago. It was never, it didn't evolve to be good at that. That's why eyewitness accounts are so terribly unreliable. You know, that's just one example. Okay, evolution. I'm going on to a little too much detail here, but yeah, know something about the evolution of the brain because that will, it'll do two things. You'll, you'll admire the brain to th- realize, wow, it does so much in such a weird kind of uh, unexpected way. And it'll also make you understand that the brain really has a lot of limitations for all its wonders, for all its power, creative power and everything, which is so admirable and respectable and, uh, you know, worthy, you know, we should be proud of it, but it's very, very limited in many, many ways. And when you understand its evolutionary past, that becomes clear and it's a way to really sink it home to you so you don't get too overconfident about what your brain can do for you. And uh, nothing, know something about brain anatomy. Again, you don't have to be a neuroscientist, but you should know. I mean, the brain is the center of everything in your life. It's the beginning of end of you. You know, you can... You can switch out any body parts you want and you're still you, but the brain, that's, you can't switch that one. You can't swap that one, okay? That's well, you. And you, sir, are going to have to sell me on this because I know in your book, you were very adamant that no one skipped this section, which I thought was wonderful. <laughs> but but I know many people who do want to make better decisions, but they desperately don't want to learn any kind of biology, much less neurology. No, give me five minutes with them. I, you know, in the in the in the chapter I have about the brain. Okay, for, first of all, just to get emphasize why I think it's important that you understand, you know, the parts of the brain, what they do, the cerebellum, the neocortex. Just know the neurons, you know. And I, I honestly, if you know, if you know all this stuff that's hidden away inside of your head that we just can't see, you know, look at some pictures. I've got some illustrations in the book. Look, look at them and then think about it. Imagine this is in my head right now. And this is allowing me to think and to remember and to, to uh, dream about tomorrow and 20 years from now, what might happen, what I may do. I mean, it's just, ama- it's amazing. It's, 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 uh, you know, reality's version of magic. It's just unbelievable 
totally cool. And so learn those parts. And in the book, to try to make it appealing, you know, I, I, I ask readers to imagine themselves shrinking down, you know, to like almost microscopic and then crawling around inside their own brain and like visiting these different parts, you know, climbing up the brain stem and then shrinking down even further and seeing the neurons, you know, this vast like galaxy of neurons that we all have in our brains. And it's just amazing how they come together. They connect and they send these little uh, electrical signals back and forth and they form networks which change when you learn. It's just unbelievable. You know, it's exciting and it really makes you appreciate the power of your brain more when you understand just the basics. By analogy, imagine if you're a race car driver, Formula One race car driver, okay? How good a driver can you really be if you've never looked under the hood of any car in your whole life? You've never seen or cared to know anything about a radiator, you know, the fan belt, I mean, an axle, the the tires, you know, you've got to know at least the basics of what makes what you do possible. And so you got to know something about the brain. And I promise people, you just, get, you just, you know, explore a little bit and it becomes kind of, uh, it just pulls you in more. You want to know more and more. It really is because it's just, it's just an amazing organ. The things it can do, you know, this three pound blob of jelly is able to comprehend or at least try really hard to comprehend the entire universe. You know, I mean, that's amazing. I, I can have thoughts about more than the universe because I can actually think, I may not fully comprehend it, but I can think about the possibility of multiple universes, you know, end to end, stretching out beyond our universe. I mean, it's just incredible. You know, this little thing in my head can do this kind of stuff. It's incredible. It really is. And I think the more you know about it, the more you appreciate it. And uh, I think also knowing about the brain and appreciating it through that knowledge also makes you want to care for it more. And that leads to eating better, you know? I mean, I've got a chapter that talks about how to take good care of your brain, what your brain wants. And it's pretty simple. I mean, it's, you know, a good diet, leafy green vegetables, fruit, berries, stay away from added sugar, that kind of stuff. And physical activity, crucial for the brain. You know, forget losing weight and looking good in jeans. That's that's a distant second. You should want to eat well and exercise for your brain first because it will improve your emotions, it'll improve the performance of your brain, and it'll keep your brain, get, at least increase the, the odds that your brain will be healthy and perform well throughout most of your life for a long, long life. That, that's, that's incredibly important. It really is because as the brain goes, so go you. You know, that's, that's how it is. Well, actually, in that section, there was something that I found interesting. Uh, science has found that there are specific best times to do certain kinds of thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. It's, oh gosh, I can't remember exactly right now. I don't have that in front of me, but it's like this, yeah, I found a fascinating study. I found a, actually two studies where there's a certain time, what was it? I think the uh, the morning. Incredibly early morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know what's interesting because I'm, I hate, I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want to accidentally flip the times and mm-hmm. give bad information, but What's interesting is that you pref- there's a certain time of day when your brain performs best, but it more it more it was it, it more uh, like specific reasoning type tasks, you know, more what we think of office work and you know maybe doing your homework and that kind of stuff. But actually, what's interesting at a time at a, there was a, a time during the day 
when the brain got a little tired or whatever, a little sluggish and all that, and wasn't really at its best for doing these sorts of tasks. But interestingly, there's a study that found that's the time when your brain can be most creative, when you can really come up with the wild, you know, loopy idea that is really good. And it's something about, they think it's just the brain's kind of slacks up on the inhibitions and lets those crazy thoughts come forward. So it's interesting. You could actually, based on science, schedule your day, you know, do your work on your taxes at the the right part of the day and then you know the other appropriate part of the day write up write poetry or write your love song or something you know I just I I love when books confirm my own biases because I have always thought that and I am someone who actually writes interviews for the show at 4 a.m. That is my peak wow. creative time. Absolutely. So yeah. thank you for confirming what I already thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. You're listening to Science for the People and we'll be back with more of Guy P. Harrison and his book Good Thinking after the break. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my guest is Guy P. Harrison, author of 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True and Race and Reality, What Everyone Should Know About Our Biological Diversity. Today, we're taking a look at his newest book, Good Thinking, What You Need to Know to Be Smarter, Safer, Wealthier, and Wiser. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about uh, what was required to be a good thinker. Uh, so a general understanding of the, the evolution of our brains, uh, basic structure of our brains, and our lifestyle's impact on the health of our brain. Uh, yeah. but he, I would add to that. There's, mm-hmm. there's a couple more, though. Do it. A couple more, couple more important points. Um, you also need to be ha- have a, a an awareness of the subconscious mind. And that's you know, the where brain. I'm going. You are oh, wonderful. Okay. No, well, that's perfect. perfect timing. So okay. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's exactly where I'm going because I think, quite honestly, I think this was my favorite section in the book. So explain uh, how having an awareness of the role of our subconscious is going to help uh, us think well. Yeah, well, it... Most people just have no idea. I mean, and it's not their fault. It's just because it seems so crazy. But 99%, more than probably, I'm sure not more than 99% of our brain's activity is occurring behind a curtain of awareness. It's in this, you know, it's beyond the zone of awareness. I mean, that's crazy when you think about it. You know, your brain, for, for example, it never sleeps. You know, when you're asleep, your brain is still cranking away, doing all sorts of stuff. It's filing away memories. It's solidifying, you know, th- networks, things you learned that previous day. All doing, And it's constantly, it never stops doing body maintenance for you, okay? Keep making sure your, your heart beats, your breathing, you know, things like that. Somewhat important, I would say. And, and then, but, but then here's the part really important for good thinking. You've got to understand the subconscious mind has a huge, massive impact on your life, your decisions, your behavior, everything. I mean, when you, when you meet a stranger, okay, and you extend your hand to shake hands, 
Now, before you get out the words, hi, nice to meet you, your subconscious is already just making, you know, assumption after assumption, you know, is this person rich, poor, safe, threatening, sexually attractive, um, ugly, what, you know, all the, and you're making all these, all these things are happening. You know, you're doing an analysis of facial symmetry to determine whether how much you think, you know, if you think this person is attractive, but also likable, trustworthy, it's weird, you know, <laughs> and all this is going on. And if you're not aware of it, if you don't realize that your brain is constantly trying to, and your brain's not trying to trick you or make a fool out of you or anything like that. Your brain is doing all this stuff to help you, to try to get you through one more moment in your life. It's taking these shortcuts. It's, it's, you know, clinging on to whatever data it can find banging around inside your skull. And it's, it's trying to give you good information. The problem is, you know, life today is much more complex than it was 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago in prehistoric Africa. You know, back then it was fine food. I'm not saying life was easy then, but it was fine food, avoid predators, and that was pretty much it. Right. You know, now you've got to, you know, you got the job interview, you've got to go on the date, you've got to, oh my gosh, you got to do all this stuff. It's super complex. And our brains aren't really evolved for this kind of stuff, at least not yet. And so you've got to be aware. Good thinking doesn't turn off your subconscious, not at all. You wouldn't want to because it it helps you. It helps you all the time. But what it does, it, it, the uh, picture I kind of draw up in the book, in this chapter about the subconscious, just to keep people understand it. Ima- imagine, imagine that you are swimming, treading water in the middle of this enormous lake. You can't even see the shore from one side to the other. And you're right in the middle of this lake and you're blindfolded. So you're kind of like, what's going on here? And you're you're constantly getting pushed one way, pulled another by the currents. Waves are banging up against you. Every now and then, some weird, you know, sea creature comes and shoves you or rubs against your legs. I mean, just all this stuff is going on. And sometimes you make the decision, I want to swim, and you start swimming, but you're really going in reverse because the current you're swimming into a current that is too strong, and you're being pushed back, but you have no idea. And all this is, you know, the lake. That's your subconscious. And the tiny little you in the middle, that's your conscious. That's the conscious you, the aware you. And what I tell people, good thinking, you know, it doesn't take you out of the lake. Not at all. Wouldn't want to anyway. The lake is part of you. But good thinking at least takes the blindfold off so that you can go, oh, I get it. Okay. So I got currents pushing me and pulling me. I've got maybe tides to worry about and there's some weird little fish bumping into me down there. Okay. So at least you have an idea of what's going on. So you again know, you know, I got to think twice before I buy this car. Maybe I'm just being impulsive here. My Maybe, maybe my subconscious is just, you know, saying, get it, get it. You'll be happy for the next 10 minutes. Get it, get it. Who cares about tomorrow? Get it, get it. You know, no, I got to think it through. So you got to, you've got to be aware. You got to take that blindfold off and know that you're in the middle of that lake. You got to think, you got to think through your important decisions. Well, taking off that blindfold allows you to see what uh, what the implicit biases are that you hold. And you, you have a, a lot of material on this in the book. Can we talk about some of those, uh, specifically starting with confirmation bias for anybody who hasn't heard of this? Yeah, yeah. You know what? You know, it's very encouraging that it's weird. Ten years ago, nobody knew what con- confirmation bias was outside of psychology classes. You know, nobody knew. But now I hear, you know, like every Everybody kind of talking about it, sports 
you know, sports casters bring it up. It's weird. It really is, but it's good. It's a good sign. I mean, I, I hope they're applying, you know, I hope they're realizing it also applies to them as a problem. <laughs> but, That's the I, issue. But, uh, yeah, but you look at like, you know, politics, it's just a textbook example, you know, especially in America, it's so polarized, you know, Democrats, Republicans, you know, just every, you know, everything they do is wrong, everything we do is right, it's just absurd, you know, it really is. But, you know, confirmation bias, just for your readers, I mean, your listeners, sorry, is uh, this natural tendency that we all have, everybody, I don't care who you are, you have it. It's this tendency you have to be attracted to evidence or observations that confirm the assumptions, the beliefs, the conclusions that you've already got inside you. So, you know, you're going to always kind of lean that way. And at the same time, you're going to kind of ignore, forget, dismiss evidence or observations or arguments that contradict the beliefs, the uh, conclusions that you've already got inside. So, I always tell people, be careful. Don't just casually say, yeah, that makes sense. I believe it. Be careful because whatever beliefs, conclusions you allow to set up camp in your brain, that gives them a huge advantage forever because your brain is going to naturally start supporting them and ignoring things that don't support it. So, you got to watch out and you got to make a conscious effort to really keep an open mind and listen to opposing arguments to the things you believe the things you are very confident are real and true you got to you've got to listen to them you really do like i i do it all the time i really do i you know i watch um like I'm not religious, and I but I listen to uh, I watch religious TV shows all the time. I listen to these people talking and stuff, and I just you know I want to hear. Like I'm not by any means am I. I'm not really political. I'm sort of just out. Of, I just watch it from the sidelines. You know, the whole thing's sort of a circus to me, but especially here in the U.S. But, that sounds but, um, pleasant. <laughs> but I but I watch uh, Fox News all the time. That's like the the super conservative news network, and you know the people on there, the things they say, they contradict pretty much everything I think to be real and true. But I watch it all the time because I don't want to just be one of these people that, you know, only tunes into the cheerleaders who agree with everything right. I say because it's a big mistake, you know. You And also it humanizes it. I found this out kind of just without ever thinking it would happen, but it really does humanize when you, when you, uh, when you dedicate yourself to having an open mind, you know, applying good things, thinking part of good thinking is having an open mind and when you really commit to that and you you give people a fair hearing and you listen to them when some when i interview someone and they tell me oh my gosh this was a miracle or i saw this ghost i know it was real i don't say i don't start immediately trying to talk them out of it and win an argument with them i listen you know i really listen because i'm most of the times i believe they really do think they saw something their brain really did serve them up that experience and so i'm just fascinated by it and I listen, but I, but in the process of trying so hard to be open minded and and uh, you know and plus hey maybe one day the flying saucer will land you know and when it happens I don't want to be so close minded that I just laugh laugh off the per- the farmer out in the field who says hey it's right over here and I just yeah whatever and I don't even look and there it is you know I missed it <laughs> it's not going to happen to me because I always listen and I have an open mind but. 
but it, it it humanizes the believer, which is really important for skeptics. It really is because you got to remember, you know, these people aren't necessarily dumb or crazy. Not at all. You know, they're human. It is human to believe irrational things. It is human to make mistakes. It is human to get reality totally wrong. That's that's the reality of our species. So it's it's wrong. It's arrogant. It's counterproductive, and it's a, it, it's a um, a bad way to operate when you just dismiss people you don't listen to them you don't fairly listen to them and so and and like i said it humanizes them because it, when i hear when, when i really really listen to these people and i treat them as equals and i don't think i'm smarter than them just because i don't you know think that this faith healer is really doing what he says he's doing it, it, when i do that it, it just makes it such a more positive encounter. It really does. I mean, I still, I try to, I try to convince people that they need a little good thinking in their life when I have these encounters. I do everything I can to do that. But I never walk away think, you know, just rolling my eyes thinking idiots, you know, and feeling like, oh gosh, you know, what a waste of space, you know, which would, which would be negative for me, you know. So it, it really, I encourage people. I really do. I encourage skeptics, atheists, you know, people who promote science and reason in any kind of way. Don't ever dismiss the, gosh, the 80% of humanity who is just, you know, looney tunes on so many things. They're only guilty of being human. That's it. But that, okay, so that leads me to two very distinct thoughts. First of all, I really want people to internalize that those people aren't looney tunes. We're all looney tunes. We all have some kind of blind spot that we are very guilty of ignoring all evidence to the contrary of. Yep. Second of all, how are how are we supposed to have conversations in a non-alienating way with people that are exhibiting those kind of traits? Again, knowing that we do that ourselves, but if we happen to notice uh, that these implicit biases are showing in someone else, how do we have that conversation in a way that, yeah. that doesn't make everyone hate us, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I give uh, many suggestions in the book Good Thinking. You know, one, one, for example, one way that I found to be very effective – um, I try a flanking maneuver. I don't do a head-on attack in many cases because, again, I'm not. I I know that I'm not just talking to the believer. I'm talking to two people. Okay, there's the believer that is aware and conscious, and then there's that subconscious person behind there that's ninety. Remember, ninety-nine percent of the brain there. So I always feel like I, I always you know know I'm talking to really two people within the head of this person standing in front of me, and I've got to reach both of them or I'm I've lost. You know, if the subconscious person standing in front of me doesn't like me because I'm being a little smug or arrogant or I'm a little too threatening or something like that or maybe my vocabulary is not appropriate for the conversation or something then that subconscious mind is going to tell that person hey forget this guy he's a jerk you know he, he can't tell you anything he's we're not going to learn anything from him exactly. shut down and so the way one, one of the techniques just give one example one of the techniques I've found to be very effective is that I do a flanking maneuver in which I I don't go head on to the person about their particular belief you know say they believe in um, in UFOs they're a passionate believer in UFOs they're trying to convince me that they're buzzing us every day they're everywhere you know aliens are abducting people on and on well I probably because that person's clearly committed to their belief I wouldn't even try to start you know debating the uh, the lack of evidence and all that stuff with them I would instead say wow that's interesting well, gee that's interesting Hey, by the way, have you ever looked into this Loch Ness monster thing? And I would, I would just briefly talk about that a bit, and I would talk about how 
uh, you can't rely on eyewitnesses, how photographs have convinced so many people and then they turn out to be hoaxes, and how uh, shadows and ripples on a lake can play games with your eyes, with your perception of reality for anyone, you know, and can fool us, and how we love stories, a good story, how the human brain just clings to a great story and wants to believe it. And I would just talk about all these things and then say, shake hands, have a great day, and I'm out of there. And I would I, I I would uh, hope that I had planted a seed of thought, you know, in their brain that might germinate and actually get them thinking about beliefs more closer to home, the UFO thing. And, and that that's actually been effective. I mean, it's incredible, you know, because I never I never directly threatened their cherished belief. Exactly. But yet, I gave them a really good example of how anyone can be led astray by very understand in understandable ways, you know. It doesn't mean they're dumb or crazy. It just can happen because you're human. And so then, they, you know, somewhere, you know, in their own mind, they have to do the work. You can't think for someone. All you can do is kind of uh, give them some information and try to inspire them, you know, to think think for themselves. You can't think for them. So I always I always approach it with that in that way. I just say, hey, you know, I'm I'm trying to help this person. I'll I'll lay out some examples here. They've got to take it from there. And it does work. It really does work. I mean it does. It takes time, but it, it can get people thinking when you do that. And there's also a thing called the uh, backfire effect, which is very disturbing. And that's one reason I don't do too many head on things if I can avoid it. Because it turns out that we all and we all have this by the way. Um Sometimes when when somebody presents you with evidence that goes against your belief or your conclusion about something, uh, it actually strengthens that belief. You just your emotions just gear up and you dig your heels even deeper. So you're actually you know many skeptics who go around trying to uh, you know argue people out of ghost belief or miracle belief or whatever. They actually are just making these people more passionate believers because they're banging that they're like pounding on the door. So that all these people do is they lock it up tighter, you know? (laughs) So you got to think about these things. That's the perfect way to put it. Okay. So something that you said in the book uh, that I thought was really important was um, that that a key to being a good thinker is A, having the courage to question everything, but B, to accept the absence of answers. And the former is fairly obvious and also super fun. Uh, But but what does accepting the absence of answers mean? Yeah, it's just... it's a weird thing, but it seems like most of us, if not everyone, is kind of encultured to uh, be really uptight about, you know, the uh, the whole concept of I don't know. You know, in school, if you, you've either got the answer or you need to just shut up and don't say anything, you know, so if you if you go around saying I don't know, then you're kind of, I guess, labeled an idiot or something. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't know. But um, yeah, my point with this is that no, you know, you should embrace the concept of I don't know because there's power in it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it, it's it's a starting point. It's also honest, by the way. You know, we have so many people running around this planet right now pretending to know things they do not know, and it causes all sorts of problems. So, first of all, I don't know is honest, and we should all be honest, at least with ourselves. Okay, so if you don't know something, say, I don't know. You know, religion is such a glaring example of this, where something weird will happen, some unexplained thing, 
And it gets labeled a miracle immediately just because nobody can answer it, at least at the moment. Nobody can explain it, or at least the people in that particular situation can't explain it. And, and so they immediately start pretending that they know that it was a supernatural event, you know, the hand of some God. And this is a terrible way to operate. It really is. You've got to say, I don't know when you don't know. And then you don't stop there. Use it as inspiration, motivation to keep working the problem, keep seeking answers. You know, maybe you will find the answer. But even then, if you can't, if there just is no answer, you know, then you got to live with it. Like me, I love space, astrobiology, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That stuff turns me on, you know. When I was a little kid, I watched the original Star Trek episodes, you know, reruns after school. I love the idea of life in space, intelligent life out in space. Turns me on like nothing else. But I'm never going, I'm not so dishonest and I'm not so desperate. I'm not so in love with the idea that I'd be willing to pretend to know it. You know, I think the odds are great. There probably is intelligent life out there somewhere in this huge universe, but I don't know. I don't know. And the, and the sad fact is I may, you know, have to live out the rest of my life and never get that answer. And that will kind of be sad. You know, I, I hope they f- hope somebody finds something before I die, but if it doesn't happen, then it just doesn't happen. I got to live with that. That's part of being a grown up. It's part of being mature. You know, it's honest. It's good thinking. You can't, you can't pretend to know things you don't know. Well, okay. So that's, that itself is difficult enough. But what is even more difficult is, uh, the, <laughs> what I consider the hardest part of your prescription for good thinking in your book is the, is the last one. Um, to change our minds when receiving better evidence. Yeah. Painful. I know. Super <laughs> difficult, sir. <laughs> yeah. You got to do it though. That's again, that's part of being a grown up. It's part of being, mature and strong and honest. You've got to do it. And when, by the way, when I say grown up, I, I, I mean grown up in the mature sense right. because a child could be a very good, th- could, could apply good thinking in their life. They really can. I mean, I, you know, I know middle school kids, high school kids who are very good thinkers. So I, I don't mean grown up like over 18 and over, not at all. But yeah, I mean, you, you've got to, you know, change your mind. And yes, it's hard, but we, and, and again, we have subconscious biases working against us. You know, we will, besides confirmation bias, there's also a thing called motivated reasoning, which is like confirmation bias, but that's when you go way overboard and you actively go out searching and constantly seeking, you know, highly motivated to prove that your belief is true at the expense of all others. You know, it's cherry picking on steroids. You know, that's when you're just going nuts with it. And, and we do that. But, but also we have to, we have to, um, understand that we're not perfect. I think this is the best way I can explain it. To, to, to be a good thinker and be willing to change your mind. All you have to do is admit. I am not perfect. I am not the smartest human who has ever lived and will ever live. I'm not the wisest life form in the universe. I have made mistakes in my mental processes, in my reasoning, and I will make more mistakes in my mental processing and reasoning. Therefore, I've got to reconsider. I got to revise. I got to change my mind every now and then. You know, what's so hard about that? I mean, come on. You know, you're not in the, the, the only person I think that would, uh, 
the only kind of person who would actually say, oh, I just, I'm not going to change my mind. They're, they're actually, you know, the kind of person who must feel that they are absolutely perfect. And when you present it to them that way, I think they might reconsider and think, well, actually, they might change their mind on that because they'd say, well, okay, I'm not perfect. Well, then there you are. Then you should be willing to change your mind. It's okay to not be perfect. We're leaving it on this note. Guy, thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure. Oh, absolutely, Desiree. I'll come on anytime. You're great. You do a great job. (laughs) Thanks, sir. And that was Guy P. Harrison and his book, Good Thinking, What You Need to Know to Be Smarter, Safer, Wealthier, and Wiser. And we'll link to it on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Up next, we have Rochelle Saunders' interview with Ben Lilly about how you can incorporate science into your stories. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Ben Lilly. Ben is a high-energy particle physicist who left the ivory towers for the wilds of New York's theater district. He's the co-founder of the traveling live show and podcast called The Story Collider. He now writes and performs stories about science and being a scientist and is a moth story slam champion. Ben, it's good to have you back. Hey, thank you. Okay, so for anybody listening who doesn't know what The Story Collider is, what is The Story Collider? (laughs) It's a show and podcast, as you said, where we have people tell true personal stories about science in their life. So the idea is that we want to we want to hear stories about science that aren't necessarily about the research, although it comes in a lot. But um, we're interested in the moments of when science has affected people, when it's changed their lives, when it's affected their relationships or their view of the universe, or in an important moment in some way. Um, so we took inspiration from uh, there's there's a, a great organization called the Moth, where they have people get up and tell a 10 minute story from their life um, live on stage without notes in front of an audience. And we thought we should do that and have the stories be about science because that's a way to, to look at science that, that really people aren't doing very much um, and we thought would, would be really good to explore further. So if the Story Collider had an origin story, what would it be? I had quit uh, physics and was in New York trying to, trying to figure out exactly what I was doing. And I had uh, played around with some ideas in, in comedy um, that weren't quite working out. And I had found the moth in storytelling. And I was doing it with some people, and a, a friend of mine said, well, do you know the other high-energy particle physicist doing comedy and storytelling? I was like, no, I don't. So uh, we got in touch, and we had basically a blind date. And I showed up, and I meet this guy named uh, Brian Wecht, who was a string theorist, and he had been doing comedy for a lot longer than me. He'd been doing it for about 10 years at that point. And we met at a, a storytelling show, and we were talking, and we both sort of wanted to do what I just described, find other ways of exploring science and people. And just exactly that night, we were just like, well, we could, we should do this uh, science. And that's it. it. It wasn't supposed to be much of a big thing. It was like, well, let's just put on a show. It'll be fun. People in New York do that a lot. It's very easy to start up a show like that. And then it just sort of took off. And we're like, okay, this is great. Let's do this. So when did you guys decide to take uh, a live event show and turn it into a podcast and kind of share it with a much wider audience? Pretty quick. So this was 2010. Podcasts weren't like the podcasting that they are now, but um, it was it was a pretty obvious 
choice to try and record them and do something with it. So I think I think we tried to record the third show and we got it right starting the fourth show. So yeah, so so very early on we realized it, it would be a simple thing to record it. And we didn't again for the podcast we didn't initially think oh this will go to a much wider audience. We're like oh we can record it and put it out there. And then of course it it did sort of take off and obviously our our podcast audience is much larger than the live show now. So uh, most science things and I'm using sort of air quotes here um, are are fact focused or process focused or education focused. So why focus on storytelling? Part of it's what you what you just said is that, that no one else is doing it, and I think there's there's a need to figure out what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a person in the scientific world, and that's that's an important question to ask. And what does that mean for all of our lives? Um, and and the problem with science is that there's this aura of scariness around it. This this idea that to, to even talk about it, you have to be an expert on the subject, and that uh, ordinary people can't understand science, and and all of these things. And I think that scares away a lot of the artists who might otherwise be doing that work. People really trying to process what it means for for people in their lives. And we decided let's let's just cut right through that and just ask people to tell their story straight up, tell theirs, so we don't have to worry about telling anyone else's, and just let the people on stage and have them tell their story and I think it's a it's a compliment to all of all of the things you just described which I think are great and, and necessary and wonderful but, but there really was this gap in, in what people were doing it's really interesting one of my favorite parts of the story collider and listening to the stories is how approachable and real it makes a lot of the scientists even people who are doing really cutting-edge work and and might be quite well known in their fields it really kind of I don't want to say brings them down to my level but it makes them more approachable and more less scary I guess. There's sort of two big ideas in, in what we do. That's one of them is, is this idea that if you put scientists on stage telling their story, it, it humanizes it. It shows that science is done by ordinary people. And again, it, it's got all these big scary words and methods and machines, and, and those are all very cool. But in the end, it's done by people going through their normal life, and they have the same stories that everyone else does. Um, the other big idea that we have, though, is that in, in any given show, about half the people telling stories will be scientists, and half of them will not be scientists. And people who, who may have no formal connection to science in their work at all. And that's really important to us as well, because the other part we want to show is that science really affects everyone. It isn't just a thing for scientists. And so the, the best way we know to do that is, is get everyone telling their story. I really like it. It sort of it humanizes in the other direction as well of showing that it, you know you don't have to go get a PhD for science to be meaningful in your life. It can be anyone, anywhere. That's a really cool idea, actually, um, that you can kind of put scientists on the same level as regular people and have that science connection stay really strong throughout the entire show. Yeah, um, it's something we don't always hit it, to be honest. Um, sometimes we, we end up booking stories where you're like, okay, there's a science connection there. Um, but most of the time, yeah, we're, we're really happy with, with how that, that turns out. And it's, yeah, there aren't a lot of events that are, that are putting scientists and non-scientists on stage with the same authority, essentially. Speaking of that, there's this mix of science and art together in Story Collider that's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of people out there of the opinion that these two shouldn't mix, or maybe that they don't need to mix, but you guys seem to mix with abandon, which is awesome. To be honest, um, we do it just by, by uh, doing the art. Uh, we, we think of ourselves primarily as an arts organization, uh, exploring what it means to be people in a scientific world. Um, and I, I, I find the, the science and art conversation fascinating. Um, there's a lot of people who try and say science and art are the same thing, which I don't think is true. And then, like you said, there's a lot of people who don't think they should mix, which also deeply confuses me because uh, science is part of the world and artists explore the world and, and it should be obvious. I tend to think of them just as 
two very different things that uh, can intersect when when there's a good reason to. And the the trick for doing it right really is to take them both very very seriously. Uh, so the times when I see it go wrong is when it's sort of a science organization that thinks of art as being in service to itself and doesn't really take the art seriously, or the other way around. You'll you'll see arts groups who want to use the science to do something but aren't actually paying attention to what the science is really saying and taking that side seriously. So the answer there is is taken both very very seriously. So when you're working with uh, in particular a scientist who is looking to tell a story for the Story Collider, what kinds of challenges do you have with scientists? And are they different from the challenges that you would have with the everyday person coming in to try and tell a story? They're not particularly different. I mean, the obvious challenge working with scientists is making sure that the the discussion of the science is at the right level and, and doesn't have too much jargon or stuff that people won't understand. That's not a huge challenge at, at this point. Everyone who's coming to our show and wants to do it understands that, that that's a thing and they're happy to get feedback on, on what needs tuning. The other challenges are all, would be the same for, for anyone, is figuring out what a strong story is, figuring out a good good art, uh, figuring out what to put in, what to, to leave out, all the, all the stuff you need to do to make a good story. The only group of people that's really significantly different is the professional writers. And for them, you just sort of, if they're really good, you just sort of sit back and watch them do their thing and occasionally say something. Do you think uh, learning how to tell a good story can help scientists, in particular scientists who are interested in doing more outreach about the work they do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think stories are, are key to talking and connecting to people. You know, you asked me early on why, why stories, and, and one other answer to that is that stories are how people connect to each other. Stories are what our culture is built on. You know, we not necessarily like a Hollywood blockbuster, but little stories that we tell over and over again is sort of how we construct culture. If you want to learn how to connect with people, you, you have to, to learn the language of how that works. And I, I think that language is stories. So if you're, if you're thinking that part of your job, as some scientists do, is, is to get out there and, and be part of the culture and be connecting with people in it, I, I think you have to learn how to, how to use stories. What makes a good story? In particular, what makes a good science story? Or would that be the same thing? Broadly, it's the same thing. So, at, yeah, at the at the first order of approximation, it's the same thing. You want something with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you want an arc where something changes in between, something meaningful changes in between. That's that's a story. The trick with science stories is is first of all finding a moment that's actually meaningful, that's connected to the science, and that can be challenging sometimes. And then, of course, the other problem is that you know at the at higher levels of approximation, what makes a good story? One of the things that goes into it, of course, is the pacing and and how you're moving events along. And the trick with science, of course, is sometimes you'll run into ideas and concepts where you need to sort of explain them or expand on things. And it's very easy to go off on tangents where you're making clear details and making clear caveats. And that can can run into the um, the problems with the pacing. And so you, you have all kinds of new challenges there where you're trying to sort out exactly how much you can get away with explaining before you, you lose the audience just, just because the pacing is off, not because you've said anything obtuse, and a, a bunch of things like that. So there are, there are some differences, but broadly the same thing. It's something that is meaningful to a person, that it changes them in some way, um, and then there's some action and, and things happen. So we have an audience with a, as a mixture of both science people, so scientists, researchers, but also lay people. So these are both people who might be interested in listening to your show and potentially being on the show and telling their own story. So um, where where can they go? What what what's the first step? The first step would be to go to the podcast and listen to some episodes. You know what we do. And and the other thing about listening to stories is they often trigger something inside you. So you hear someone's story and you think, oh, that's like this one thing that happened to me. And it can be a great way of, of generating ideas. And then the second step would be to to figure out roughly what you want to tell and then email us uh, stories at storycollider.org or find us 
after show if you if you're in a place where you can go to a live show. Um, and we take a lot of our stories from that. I think well over half of our stories at this point come from people who've pitched us. So that's that's not a futile thing. And then once we've decided to to book a story, we actually work with the people a lot um, on crafting it and so forth, which is why I, I didn't say you need to get in perfect shape before before pitching us. When is your next live show? October 26th in the Bay Area. That's part of the Bay Area Science Festival. And then December 9th in Brooklyn as part of our normal New York series. And then December, uh, I want to say 12th, I might be wrong, in Boston as part of our normal Boston series. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much. The Story Collider is a really wonderful show to listen to. Um, There's some great storytellers on that show. Thank you. Um, Also, do you have a favorite that people like? Which one that you, is there one that you would recommend as a starter? There's uh, too many. I, I will say for for the scientist listeners, there's there's one that I always bring out as a great example of how you you weave a narrative around some really solid science that the audience learns, and that's the one we had very early on by David Carmel. He's a neuroscientist whose dad had a stroke, and he's he's dealing with that. But in the middle of it, he manages to explain some amazing science in a way that I think everyone who heard that story came away with. So that's that's one to listen to. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being here. We'll have links to the Story Collider and to that specific episode of the Story Collider for anybody who wants to give it a listen. All right, thank you. Find out more about our guests and their work by visiting us online at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to our social media feeds, to subscribe to the show in iTunes, and to join the discussion by leaving a comment on our episode posts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.